like a stately cathedral, lots of stained glass, right? Maybe the stations of the cross as you go around. I just said that some of you are like, where are the stations of the cross? But we'll talk about that some more. Uh, maybe some monks, right? Chanting, sweet brown robes, right? Are they monks or are they Jedi? <laughs> Bushes and people trembling in fear and falling down faint, right? That happens in the Bible. Maybe think of someone who never drinks alcohol or goes to any rated R movies and definitely never dances. Right? Or, or maybe you picture an older lady kneeling in her prayer closet, pleading for souls. All of those, of course, are, are cultural images of holiness. There's nothing wrong with any of them. I bring them up because I think we have all sorts of ideas and confusions around the idea of holiness. I think that Western Christians have a complicated relationship with holiness. We're not sure we always understand it. We sort of think maybe we want it. Maybe. But we're not sure. We do know for sure, pretty much, we, we don't want to seem odd for God or anything like that. So, like, probably the whole, you know, dressing like a Jedi thing is probably odd. If I got to do that to be holy, that might be a bit odd. But we also kind of go, well, it sure seems like a good thing. We've read our Bible, we know that, so. What do we do? Now, we've been in these letters to these seven churches. Book of Revelation, and of course, our overriding question as we think about these seven churches is our asking ourselves, what does Jesus want his church to be like? Because that's what these are. These are real letters to real churches that existed at one time, where he's giving them information about what they should be like. And we started in Ephesus, right? And there we learned that truth and love go together. Jesus wants his people to be firm on the truth. But he wants them to do it in love, not in self-righteousness or obnoxiousness. It's not enough to be truthful. It has to be done in love, where Jesus isn't interested. I mean, last week we were at Smyrna. There we learned that sometimes... When we do that standing firm on the truth thing, even if we do it with love, we do it the right way, there might be persecution. Some people aren't going to like it, which means they're not going to like you. Once again, when we're persecuted, what are we to do? We respond in love. See the trend here? Whatever Jesus wants from us, even in the midst of persecution, even when people are coming at us, no matter what he wants us, he wants it to come out of a place of love. Now today we're going to move around the map. We're going to go to the city of Pergamum. We've got our map here. Now I want you to notice, okay, so we started in Ephesus, right? And then we went north to Smyrna. Now we're going to go even farther north to Pergamum. Now, if you notice, these letters, next one's going to be Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. If you notice, they make a circle on 
map, okay, as you go around. Just making a circle around these, these cities. Now the city of Pergamum built on a large hill. In fact, the name, the word Pergamum means literally citadel. And it was the official capital of the Asia Minor province. It had a bunch of temples. It had three of them to various emperors. It had four other huge ones to various Roman gods, the greatest of which was the Temple of Zeus. Now this is a reproduction of the Temple of Zeus. Um, you notice that the real one is even bigger than this. Shaped like a horseshoe, right? And uh, the real one was about half the size of a football field. And it had a magnificent throne-shaped altar in the center. And it was set on the highest part of the highest hill of Pergamum in the Temple of Zeus. Now, I'll be honest, after having learned about the Temple of Zeus in Pergamum shaped like a horseshoe, I have often wondered if the OSU football stadium is modeled after that because bad things happen in both places. Library. It was a center of learning and culture, and it was particularly known for its medical school in the Temple of Asclepius. Not Asclepius. Asclepius. Not the Roman god of napping. The Roman god of healing and medicine. Now the symbol for Asclepius was a snake. Okay, and the temple, in fact, was filled with snakes. And the staff and wings then were added later from the symbol for Hermes, the messenger of the gods, to get this. This look familiar? Yeah. Right? This was the rod of Asclepius. And this is the caduceus of Hermes. Does that look like anything you've ever seen anywhere? <laughs> yeah, right? It's a medical symbol, right? Blue cross, blue shield, all the places out, right? You might see some resemblance between the pagan god Asclepius and his snakes and the modern medical symbol, the caduceus, okay? You, you can make of that what you will. I'm not gonna say anything more about that. Instead, we're gonna see what Jesus says to the church at Pergamum. Revelation chapter two, starting at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there that hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Jesus' image here now, it starts out, he's described as the one the angel of the church of Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. <clears throat> Jesus with the, the sharp sword in verse 12. Now the two-edged sword in the scripture is the symbol of God's word, <coughs> excuse me, as it brings judgment. 
Right? Hebrews 4.12, you probably heard this verse. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? The word can judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Or maybe when we hear the two-edged sword, you think of the imagery in Revelation chapter 19, right? Of Jesus returning on the white horse. Okay, so you know there's at least some animals in heaven, right? At least five animals in heaven. Right? The four horses for the four horsemen apocalypse, the Jesus white horse. At least five. May not be any other. Your dog might not be in heaven. But at least Tristan's got some horses. <laughs> Right, he comes right, and what does it talk? It's about Jesus, and it says, A sharp sword comes from his mouth to defeat the armies of the nations arrayed against him. Now, obviously, I'm assuming when we read that, we realize that Jesus isn't like coming from heaven spitting swords at people. Right? Okay, it's, it's talking about the power of his word in judgment. Okay, just as creation was ultimately by his word. So judgment and his victory over evil come by his, the power of his word. He speaks it. He brings judgment in his word. When he's bringing judgment with his word, it's described as a sword. So that's what we got here. Now then, we got to ask ourselves, self, why would Jesus be standing in potential judgment at this church? Before you get to get that, where he tells us that, he tells us that they, they, they've got some things they're doing right. The first has to do with this guy, Antipas, Satan's throne. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, history tells us Antipas was likely the first martyr in Asia Minor. According to extra-biblical sources, Antipas was a physician in Pergamum. So where did Antipas work? The temple of Asclepius, right? Where the, the medical school was. Yeah, not Zeus. Although, that'd be even scarier because that's the dude with the lightning bolt. Don't mess with that guy either. Uh, the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing, right? Not Asclepius, the god of napping. Asclepius, the god of healing. Now here's how somebody got treated at the temple of Asclepius. You're really gonna like this. So you have some illness and you go to the temple, you go to the temple of Asclepius. And the priests of Asclepius, the doctors there, you would make an offering to them, and then you would come into the temple and you would lie for the night inside the temple, which was filled with thousands of what?
in scripture that shows up as a snake. You say, could it be Satan? <laughs> wow, I just really dated myself there, right? <laughs> Little Dana Carvey. Yeah. Back when Saturday Night Live was still funny. What was Asclepius' symbol? Satan in the garden, what he appears as, as a serpent-like being in the garden. Right? Then you got Asclepius the symbol. The snake in the temple is filled with snakes. And to get healed, you come and you lie among the snakes. So you can see why Jesus might refer to a place like Pergamum as the place where Satan's throne was. Because that's just got all sorts of creepy written all over it. <laughs> so the story goes, back to Antipas, that Antipas came to Christ, and of course, he stopped worshiping Asclepius. And the other doctors did not like this. So they turned him in, and they accused him of disloyalty to Asclepius and atheism. And he was convicted, and he was roasted inside a large bowl made of brass. Jesus calls him a faithful witness, right? And that, of course, that word for witness, martus, is the word we get the word martyr from. So many in the Pergamum church were faithful, people like Antipas. Faithful to the death, right? They did not deny Christ despite circumstances, even unto death. Persecuted, cut off. There's another story that a few years after Antipas, Several stonecutters who came to Christ were executed because they refused to carve idols of Asclepius. So some of the people in the Pergamum church were living out the lesson of Smyrna. They were standing firm even in the midst of persecution. But apparently, from what we're going to be told here in a second, not everybody at the church of Pergamum had the same faithfulness of people like Antipas. Because Jesus has a complaint, and this tells us why he is standing ready to judge. Verses 14 and 15 tell us the sins of Pergamum. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus to describe the sin refers to a specific incident in the history of Israel. And it's the story of Balaam. Now the story of Balaam and Balak occurs in Numbers chapters 22 through 25. You'll remember this is the guy whose donkey talks to him. Right? He's riding along the donkey and the donkey sees an angel and, and Balaam doesn't see it. So Balaam whacks the donkey a couple times and the donkey turns around and looks at him and goes, Dude, what are you hitting me for? What's that? My side of the swamp. Yeah. So Balaam is this prophet for hire. And he's hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel. But every time he goes to curse Israel, he can only bless Israel. Well, needless to say, his employer, Balak, is a little miffed about this. Because he's like, I hired you to curse them. And every time you bless them. And Balaam's like, well, dude, I can only tell you what God says. But, but I've got a plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get 
Halloween festival, and all sorts of naughtiness is going to ensue, and then their God will be mad at them and judge them. Balak's like,
going into the movie theater, that was, that was a strict no-no. Go to the beach. I don't remember nowhere saying go to the beach. Then we're playing cards. Cards. Right, because the face cards look like, sort of like tarot cards. separate from sin. Or maybe even a better way to put it is Jesus wants us to pursue increasing holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us to strive for peace with everyone and for the, to strive for and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You notice it says strived for there because you cannot be instantly holy. It's not like ramen noodles where I can just you know, undo the package, right, throw them in the water for three minutes and boom! Instant ramen. Some of you went to college and you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> ramen. Survival. Yeah. Okay. I mean, used to be in college, bowl of ramen and a lender's bagel. Anyone know what lender's bagels are? See, in the old days, there weren't things like Panera. Wanted a bagel, you bought it frozen in the frozen food section and you brought it in the toaster. Lenders frozen bagels. When I was in college, I ate a lot of Lenders frozen bagels and ramen. No. You had these onion and garlic bagels? Step number seven, now you've worked. 
seven steps out your door, you were a terrible sinner. But if you only took five, you were okay. But here's my question. What about the ones that got to go back and
20 years ago, now I realize that I need to repent of them. I'm sure there will be others that will become apparent over time, and I'll need to repent of those. That's okay. And that's what Jesus wants for all of us. When we're faced with a, a sin issue, a worldly issue, in other words, what God says I should do and what I want or what the world wants are in conflict, I learn to choose God's way. And if I'm not choosing God's way, then I repent of that and I choose God's way. We pursue holiness as God reveals a sin to us and we turn from that sin and choose what Jesus wants. We don't try to justify it. We don't try to rationalize it. We just repent and obey God. Pursue that, Christ promises us a reward. It's a rewarding endeavor. But there's a reward for holiness. Last verse, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the hidden manna there, what the manna, right? The manna in the Old Testament, the food would rise out of the ground for the Israelites to feed in the wilderness. The idea of Christ's spiritual nourishment. Remember, Jesus calls himself what? The bread of life. Man was a type of bread. And the one who seeks holiness is going to experience a level of intimacy and spiritual power from Jesus that is way beyond anything they can ask or imagine. I think a lot of times what keeps us from a more fulfilling relationship with Jesus is we just don't want to undergo the change that we know Jesus will make in some area, some area of our life. I remember a million years ago, Jen's mom, before she came to Christ, was afraid to come to Christ because she was afraid she was going to have to stop smoking cigarettes. And Jen basically said something to her like, "Look, mom, I don't know if God's going to God will deal with that. With, uh, God's going to want you to stop smoking cigarettes or not. He'll deal with that one because that's that's not that shouldn't keep you from Jesus." Let him deal with that later. If he wants you, he'll just quit smoking. He'll give you power to quit smoking. As long as maybe some of that goes past you. See, sometimes we don't, we don't want to give up. Then there's the white stone. That's, that's a symbol of victory, right? The symbol of Jesus saying you've overcome. Because in the Olympic Games, the victors were victorious, you would get a white stone with your name on it as admission to the victory celebration. That was your ticket. The symbol of victory over the world of sin here. And then we get a new name. Right? Now throughout the Bible, God renames people and he blesses them. Right? Abram becomes Abraham. Saul becomes Paul. Jacob becomes Israel, that sort of thing. And the new name symbolizes a changed or improved relationship with God. Everyone whose name God changes, it's because their relationship with God has changed in a positive way. When we pursue holiness, our relationship with God changes in a positive way. It becomes deeper. It becomes stronger. We get more of Jesus in our life. And more of Jesus is something we should all really want in our lives. Because honestly, he, he is the best part of following him. The best part of following Jesus is you get Jesus. 
So Jesus wants his people to pursue holiness. Every one of us is responsible before him, but with his help, with his guidance, with the Spirit's power to identify and root out the sin in our lives and seek those eternal rewards for overcoming in faith. Because I can promise you, both this life and in the next, the reward for growing more like Jesus is the best reward you can get. Let's pray. Jesus, it's, uh, when you think about holiness, I think that we would be dishonest if we didn't admit that we have some sort of mixed feelings about the whole thing. Maybe some fear. Even. But really, holiness is just wanting more of what you want in our lives. And everything that you want in our lives is good and perfect. anything in our lives that is good and perfect. Even if for a short time, sometimes it's painful. So help us strive for holiness. Help us to respond in repentance whenever you reveal to us something that is opposed to you.